This is Looking Forward, conversations about the future of work, brought to you by Herman Miller. Welcome to the Looking Forward podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Anderson. Today, we talk with Dr. Andreas Hofbauer, founder of Atelier Culture. Andreas is a sociologist with a passion for creating healthy organizational networks. He'll help us understand how our networks have been weakened throughout the pandemic and how our spaces can help to strengthen them. Enjoy this chat with Dr. Andreas Hofbauer. Hey, Andreas. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Always great chatting with you. So, Tell us a little bit about you and Atelier Culture. Sure. So my background is in organizational innovation and creativity, which means that I focus on how groups and organizations introduce new ideas and practices into their networks, whether it's helping companies develop practices for breaking out of deeply entrenched mindsets or seeing everyday objects and ideas in completely new ways. My work focuses on how knowledge is produced and moves through companies. A few years ago, I founded Atelier Culture, uh, which is an organizational behavioral design studio that combines uh, principles of organizational design and behavioral sciences to help our clients build cultures and practices that empower teams to challenge the status quo, identify novel opportunities, and be ever more relevant. Awesome. So that definitely draws upon, if uh, if I'm hearing you right, the social sciences. Um, I sense some sociology and some other disciplines in there. Give us a little sense of what kind of a mashup of disciplines you bring into your work on a daily basis. Sure. So I'm a sociologist by by trade, um, but throughout my doctorate, I brought in a lot of people from uh, behavioral sciences, uh, the sociology of cognition, so how the brain works. Um, but I like to think more about how groups work and how larger groups kind of interact both within companies and even beyond com- uh, companies themselves, so their, their larger fields um, and where those fields are kind of meet different fields and how they all interact and spread ideas and exchange ideas. Well, what a fantastic time to have a deep knowledge about how teams and groups work, because I sense there's a lot of concern and maybe maybe some anxiety out there in the world among organizational leaders just about the state of things after 18 plus months of working remotely. Um, how would you characterize, I know every organization is different, but how might you organize the state of teams and networks these days? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Ryan. We, we, we don't ask that enough. Um, and I think all leaders should be asking that internally uh, because I truly believe that we're at a tipping point. Whether we approach the question from the standpoint of culture, creativity and innovation, collaboration and effectiveness, employee engagement and retention, or adaptability and flexibility to emerging market demands, we need to look at how our employees are connected and if the patterns of relationships across our companies are working for us or against us. So the short answer to your question about how the last 18 months has impacted us, I think that most organizational networks are in need of some serious attention and preventative maintenance. So if you kind of think about it, organizational networks are the fabric that hold companies together. They're more than pipes through which ideas and behaviors flow. They're also the filters that determine what ideas and behaviors reach us and how we interpret them. So the past 18 months has exerted some truly unique forces on organizations, um, which has frayed many of these networks, putting them at risk of becoming so porous and weak that they start actively constraining employees from achieving their company's objectives and aspirations. And, you know, we, we all see the signs around us, right? Like people finding it hard to collaborate, colleagues complaining that they feel more like strangers than teammates, new hires struggling to connect with their employers, and our veteran employees finding that the culture that made the company so special is being diluted or lost as new employees aren't getting, you know, culturated in the same way. They're not getting um, access to the same kind of culture that they would if they were in the same shared offices or around their colleagues. And 
our knee-jerk response is to blame it on, you know, working from home and the disconnect that we've experienced working virtually. And while that's certainly part of the story, it isn't the whole story. So the past 18 months has fundamentally rewired a lot of organizational networks. And I want to explain what I mean by that. So for the past year and a half, companies have been onboarding new employees at an unprecedented rate with few opportunities to develop, you know, those meaningful relationships with their colleagues. So not only have we been adding additional roles and new positions, which is incredible because we're trying to meet emerging market demands and opportunities, we've also lost a lot of those existing employees who have moved on to new positions. So we've essentially thinned out a lot of those strong connective ties that hold the fabric of our companies together, all while adding new people who don't yet know who to coordinate with and how, who knows what, and where to turn for different kinds of advice and information. And while we need new employees and you know, to constantly bring in new ideas and practices to prevent our companies from becoming calcified and unable to respond to rapidly changing markets, if people aren't connected appropriately, networks won't be able to connect people from across an organization, transfer knowledge and practices, and propagate culture. But the good news is that there are a lot of small and manageable interventions we can introduce to rebuild the strength of our organizational networks to ensure our organizations succeed and can adapt um, to rapidly changing market conditions. So what you're ma- saying makes sense, that these more established relationships, people that have been in the organization for a while may have gone, others have come in, haven't had the chance to build up that network connectivity in the same way. At a, at a super pragmatic level, how would a leader of an organization know whether or not their network of, of individuals within the organization are functioning well or not functioning well? What's the indication of health? Sure. So one of the the, the kind of key indicators is how are people connected? If you look across groups, are there, are there only one or two people connecting them? Is knowledge able to move through an organization? By that, I mean more than just kind of information that everyone should be expected to know, but do new ideas move through? Um, if we ask new employees about the culture, do they actually reflect what you know we've built up in our organizations? That's typically a pretty good indicator to get a sense of is culture moving through? Um, these are those kind of tacit parts of knowledge. These are the, the unspoken rules in an organization. And it's a pretty good indicator if that's not getting propagated and passed on to new new employees that have, you know, I hear this all the time. People are being added at incredible rates, which is great for companies, but, you know, hundreds of employees haven't met their colleagues. They've never been to a shared office. So if they're not getting that culture or they're not able to embody that, that's a good indicator that other pieces of knowledge aren't flowing through the organization. As you're talking, I'm almost imagining like a circulatory system or maybe like a subway map of connectivity that evolves over time. You mentioned that in some cases, maybe only one or two people connect different groups. Are these bridges to one another, like between groups, one of the things that keep uh, a culture or a network really thriving? Yeah. So these these cross-cutting ties across an organization, they're incredibly important because they bring different parts of our, of our companies together. So when we have very large companies um, in the hundreds to the tens of thousands, there's a lot of little subgroups within those organizations, right? Not everyone can be directly connected to each other. So those cross-cutting ties that connect different aspects of an organization, they, don't, they not only allow a lot of knowledge to flow very quickly across the organization, but they also act to connect those parts. So the more people that we have connecting those different groups and communities, they serve to you know build the redundancy um, of those ties so that they become more uh, robust to attrition. So as we have a lot of employees leaving to seek new opportunities, a lot of new people coming in, we start to lose those cross-cutting ties. And the more of those that we lose, the more um, you know susceptible our organization is to starting to break apart 
um, and not being able to function the same way. So we want to make sure that there's a few cross-cutting ties, a few people in each group that are connected and that they have good relationships with one another so that they can make sure that they're you know, able to cohesively bring the company together, but then also propagate new ideas and culture, because those are kind of the, the kind of wider conduits that allow more challenging knowledge, knowledge that isn't, you know, new or isn't familiar to us to move through the organization. Yeah, that makes sense. So tell me, what's the role then of the physical environment? I know there's lots of things that can impact the the health of these networks, but do our spaces either positively or negatively impact the health of our networks? Yeah. So by now, most of us can empathize with the fact that the physical like that physical proximity to team members unlocks dimensions of interactions and exchanges that are critical for creative collaborations. They build trust, empathy, shared senses of commitment and responsibility. But physical work environments also play another often overlooked role in how a company thinks, acts, and evolves. So they channel interactions. And we know from decades of research and experience that seemingly small and insignificant contextual features can have massive effects on people's behaviors and how organizations operate. And that the power of these small and often taken for granted details comes from how they guide interactions. So specifically, what kind of interaction can happen in a particular context and between whom? In other words, there's no such thing as a, as a neutral design, right? Every design channels us in some way. So if your office has moved locations, uh, pre-pandemic, obviously, you've no doubt experienced how the patterns of interactions and who you have access to changed. You probably built new relationships with some colleagues and then became disconnected from others. And that's the power of channeling interactions. And we can use the same principle to help build organizational resilience, break down silos between teams and functions, and increase diversity in thinking and collaboration. Let me give you some examples. So one of the most common concerns of clients is supporting cross-functional collaboration. So when teams find them challenging to orchestrate, it's typically a symptom that the network has become too balkanized. So again, there's a bunch of small cliques and there's only one or two people who are weakly connected between them, which makes it hard to exchange the kinds of ideas and insights that will help us advance our products and services. But by creating shared spaces where teams can work together in a physically proximate space helps build strong relationships between multiple members. So through this small intervention, you can help break up um, these, these, these siloed groups and bring them together, um, which helps build resilience to attrition. Uh, this will also support a more robust and enduring exchange of ideas across groups. So even if people come and go, there is that kind of language of how we collaborate, how we coordinate between these groups, and people pick that up. But if we only have one or two people that are there and then they leave, then we all of a sudden start carte blanche and we have to reestablish those ties and those, those, those knowledge exchanges between the groups. Another concern is increasing the diversity of information available for making decisions, right? This is such an important thing within organizations, especially as they become very large. But oftentimes we don't know who to turn to for that information. We don't know who knows what. So this is typically a symptom that there aren't enough cross-cutting ties between different parts of our organization. So if creating working groups isn't possible, we can shift around where people are located in the office to either create more shared interactions in common spaces, or more optimally, we can channel them by the people we want um, them to interact with. So maybe they're on another side of, the, of a floor plate or a different part of the office, and we can't physically relocate them for whatever reason. We can also create those routines where people meet them in offices that are around, their, around those people so that they start to pass by them and create those moments and opportunities where people can interact. So while, you know, this is often overlooked, our physical work environment directly impacts the health of our networks. 
Um, so once we determine the styles of work and patterns of in interactions that are necessary to achieve a company's objectives and aspirations, we can design interventions, often very subtle ones, right? They don't have to be these massive um, overtures. Um, through these little subtle interventions, we can improve our capacity for innovation and adaptation. So let's talk a little bit about the subtlety here, because you mentioned that some of these details can be overlooked right. um, or they might be seemingly small. That also probably causes some of us to feel like, oh, maybe maybe we don't even know what they are. Or we don't know what we should look for. I've seen approaches to workplace design where it feels like everyone's mashed up together in a big open area. To me, that feels like a major intervention. Any um, more specific examples of the sort of physical design features that might be small and overlooked, but can have a really positive effect? Yeah. So oftentimes we think about, like, like you're mentioning, like these big, these big interventions, but oftentimes it can just be small things. So if we want to bring people into an office that might have a few people sitting in it, four or five, six people, we have to give them those opportunities to walk in. Um, if there's a bunch of people in an office, we might not feel invited into them, but just by creating a shared common space where anyone can come in, maybe that's a table um, with an additional chair, people feel more welcome to walk into those spaces. Small stuff like where we place um, our offices in different departments, just by putting people, co-locating them um, next to one another. So if there's two groups that need to work together, but we're realizing that they're siloed off, just by co-locating them. We know from a ton of research that they're going to start to form more stronger relationships. They're going to start to have more repeated interactions, and that will start to um, translate into their work patterns. So they're going to start to work better together. They're going to start uh, start working more together. So even if we shift just a few people from one of those practice groups next to another practice group, we can start to build those cross-cutting ties and start to break down those silos. So let's talk a little bit then about social spaces. It's kind of been my feeling that for a while there's been this hope that serendipitous encounter will lead to lots more collaboration, groups working in totally different ways. But I, I think there's a growing skepticism that just seeing one another, being around a social space, having a cup of coffee actually changes the way people work. Like, What are the, the limits and opportunities of having more social spaces where people can interact? Yeah. So often we kind of ask that, that kind of question in the context of, you know, how can we help build culture within an organization, but also collaboration, right? Like that's the, the biggest concern of most, most um, organizational leaders across pretty much every knowledge, uh, knowledge business. And there's kind of two ways to answer that question. And the difference is in what the objectives are, right? So if boosting culture and collaboration means creating stronger ties between people within the organization, you know, the ones that are built on trust, mutual respect, shared responsibility, then yes, coffee bars and sofas can actually boost culture and collaboration. Uh, we all have anecdotes about special places within our office that allow people uh, from across the organization to meet and interact. Whether those are coffee bars with ample seating, a communal kitchen where we eat or we grab our lunch, or informal meeting spaces where people congregate. So those moments where we kind of converge on each other as we go through the office. They all increase interactions. So over time, these frequent interactions can transform relationally weak connections into strong ones. They also increase the likelihood that you know we're going to meet some of our friends of our colleagues who we might not otherwise interact with, creating stronger ties between the teams, units, and functional groups. So this goes back to that, that question above, like these small innocuous things like putting a shared coffee machine can have huge impacts on who gets to connect in an office uh, and who they start to build relationships with and those cross-cutting ties. And 
you know, if you can only pick one, I would recommend getting a great coffee machine because let's face it, if it's subpar, people are going to go and leave the office. But this is probably the most common place people tell me they have formed the most influential and productive relationships in their offices. And I've probably asked this question to a couple thousand people. Coffee machines with, you know, located in one central location, some seating, and you have a pretty good recipe for bringing people together from across an office and getting them to interact and engage. But on the other hand, if your goal is to increase the kinds of collaborations that bring cross-cutting ideas and cutting-edge ideas from across the organization together, you know, the ones that create new products or services or insights, central meeting locations uh, like coffee bars are limiting. Uh, For one, they decontextualize us from our work. So we tend to converge on what we have in common. Uh, When we meet colleagues in neutral spaces, which is great for building strong relationships, they don't give us access to the kinds of knowledge that's pushing the boundaries of, a respect, of their respective fields, practice groups, or teams. And that's because most of the, you know, that novel information, those ideas, uh, they're not common knowledge yet. So the people who are dealing with them, whether it's us, whether it's our colleagues, they're struggling to kind of make sense of them, incorporate them into their, their daily routines and how they're thinking about their projects or, or the, the problems that they're trying to solve. So they, they haven't yet figured out how to communicate them to others. So we aren't bringing them up during informal and spontaneous interactions. So if we want to access these kinds of ideas so that we can recombine them, we can you know create connections across an organization and really push our products and services or insights or ways that we approach problems, we need to become more immersed in each other's work environments. So this doesn't happen at a coffee machine. This happens by bring two groups together in a shared space where they can see what the other people are working on. So what are the new ideas? What's, you know, what it's, what prototypes are on their desk? What papers are they kind of reading? Any artifact that they use for their work, um, this changes discipline to discipline and company to company. But once you see those all laid out, once you have those in the space, and I find if you, you know, you've really pushed those groups to start to pin up information and spread that out so that people, you know, get a better overview of what's going on, it provides that firsthand glimpse into whatever's pushing your colleagues' fields forward. And from there, you can start exploring new ideas and associations between your dis- different disciplines. And I've found that this is one of the most productive ways to help build collaboration that really pushes knowledge and organizations. That is so interesting. But what you're saying makes sense. The social connectivity is one thing, but that socialization is happening out of the context of work. We have to really bump into each other's work, so to speak. Right, exactly. In the past, you've used a, a term called network folding to describe some of this dynamic of, of how groups can interact related to their work. Can you tell us a little bit more about that term? Sure. So it goes, you know, when we bring groups together, we don't want them to, you know, converge on the intersect between those those groups. So whatever is interesting about the different groups, if we converge on on what's common, um, that really, we lose a lot of the value of information. And while those those overlaps are incredibly important to build the, the rapport, build the trust, uh, and build those coordination mechanisms between the groups, we want people to retain what makes them unique. So if that's research and development, sales, whatever the function is, we want to keep them unique, keep them working in their capacities, keep them building and evolving their capacities. But we want to bring them together where they, you know, they, they become mutual insiders or multiple insiders in each other's networks so that they get that familiar access to what's pushing their, their respective colleagues' uh, disciplines forward. Um, and you're giving them that access to those new ideas. So what are those, those things that are pushing them we don't get that when we just kind of connect people. So when they kind of come to a meeting once a week, or if they just kind of come in really quickly into someone's office, because, you know, the ideas that are really pushing us, the ideas that are really challenging and the ones that are going to, you know, push any field forward, they aren't 
easy. They're on, they're not there for the taking, right? We can't just pick them up. And part of innovation by its very nature is that we're, we're recombining ideas into new assemblages. So if we're kind of immersed in each other's, in each other's networks, whether that's in a shared space or um, only a few people are sharing space together, but from distinctive network uh, groups, you're able to get that access to so many of those resources. And then you make those serendipitous encounters um, between ideas or associations between ideas. You can start riffing on connections and let those take their, their own path. And that's when you see incredible innovation in so many different fields. That's where the most innovative ideas come from is when these networks kind of converge or fold onto one another, but they don't converge on that, that central space. They kind of keep their identities unique. This is probably a gross oversimplification of what you're saying, but what I'm thinking of as you talk is that there's opportunities to build communities and culture, but when it comes to collaboration, it's not just social, it's really about the work and encountering each other's work and being able to see how our work intersects way beyond just having friends in other departments. Uh, I'm just wondering if if this in some ways creates a sense of ownership or agency or equality within those that might be in an environment to take a little more ownership over how they work there, how they interact. Um, is there any relationship there between kind of the agency or control that a user has and how networks might evolve over time? Absolutely. That's, that's such a good, good, good point that you bring up. So, I mean, we've all been in offices that feel very um, controlled, managed. Um, you know, we have this kind of psychological or the social sense of where we can go, where we can't go, where we're allowed to walk into, where we can't. And when we have those environments that, you know, might present incredibly well, um, they also start to hinder us from making, you know, those connections and walking into spaces. All the examples I've seen across many different organizations and where we've kind of instituted these, these concepts, you want to have a more rougher space so people feel more able to walk into those spaces. They feel more uh, accepted to walk into those spaces and start to work with those people. So it's about creating that kind of environment where people feel accepted, people feel more neutral. And it's also kind of how you design those spaces, right? Give people the opportunities to pin up their ideas, move around furniture. Uh, if we start with, you know, pre-configuration, people kind of default to the status quo bias. They'll take whatever they get and they'll kind of occupy it and, and make it work for them. But if we start to just, you know, move tables, move chairs to the side, take stuff down from the wall and then force people when they walk into those spaces to first figure out what works for us. Um, so they can't just default to whatever the, the past uh, configuration was. People get that, like you're saying, that agency. And they start to feel like, yeah, we're in control. We can we can morph around this room as our ideas evolve, as, as different people come into this space. So I feel like allowing that flexibility, but kind of in pushing our, our, our peers and our colleagues to, to reconfigure those spaces, depending on what they're doing, that creates, like you're saying, that ownership and just that feeling that you can really use that space in so many different ways. Um, that typically we don't see when, you know, there's a pre-established configuration. You're describing the the difference between working ar around a space and maybe having that space work for, for us, which a lot of people might not even feel comfortable doing. And I think it's really interesting that you describe changes in these space designs as interventions, <laughs> which is a little different than the plan it and try your best to get it right you know, from now until lease expiration that may have been true of design in the past. Well, a couple of questions to, to maybe bring us towards a close. If an organization is thinking that maybe the health of their networks isn't what it could, what kind of practical steps might you recommend to a friend who's maybe the CEO of a company and is beginning to think about these things? My first thing right off the top would be 
start small and incremental. So just to your point that you just made, we often think about, you know, here's our strategy, we need to implement it. And then we have a 5, 10, 15, whatever that lease term is, and we're going to live that. Use use flexible space, start to experiment with what works. Um, that's going to help us get to where we need to be a lot sooner um, and get us to what is empathetic and meaningful to those people occupying those spaces. So focus on one area of the company and then use that as an incubator to test and reinforce new practices and behavior. When we start really small like that, it's far more manageable than organizational-wide change initiatives that haven't been fully tested or vetted out. And if we, you know, if we roll these ideas out correctly, so if we start small, they, they have a tendency to cascade out, which in my experience is far more successful at gaining adoption and long-term stickiness. And that's the most important, right? Like we, we don't want people to adopt something because they feel like they're coerced into it. We want them to feel that ownership. We want them to own that, that change, whatever that is, or that new configuration that helps them connect with their people in such ways that allow them to do what they need to do effectively um, in an engaged way in organizations. So if we do that, we can drive that long-term stickiness because it overturns those established norms, right? And I know it sounds really counterintuitive to start small somewhere, but when you look at a lot of the most successful large-scale shifts in practices and behaviors, whether those are societal-wide or in our organizations, they typically start like this, really small. I'd also focus on some of the most common issues companies are facing right now. So first off, new employees feeling disconnected from the larger organization. This is probably one of the most common things I'm hearing. So over the past 18 months, most companies have hired a lot of new employees who have never met their colleagues and understandably feel disconnected. So I'd recommend examining how employees who have been with the company for you know, a couple of years pre-COVID became embedded in their company's network and subgroups, right? What was that experience like? What were the contexts? What were those, those interactions or those rituals and those routines that allowed them to become embedded, allowed them to feel like they're part of their organizational network? Then try to find ways to replicate those experiences to help new employees become more embedded into the network. Right? We've we've kind of changed as we've moved away from you know the office as a as a crutch. We need to become so much more intentional in how we introduce and bring people into networks. So those intro calls through Zoom or happy hours, those those won't suffice. We have to be a lot more intentional in how we how we bring people in and what those experiences are like. Second, probably one of the other great issues that people are struggling with right now is splits between departments, regions, and teams. So most companies have lost a lot of long-term employees over the last 18 months. The pandemic has given a lot of people time to think where they want to be, and they've pursued new opportunities. And we've, you know, just like we've gained a lot of new employees, but losing those long-term employees has thinned out a lot of the ties that held different parts of organizations together. So for this, I'd recommend starting by identifying which parts of the network have been cut off from one another. By example, two functions that no longer have people acting as bridges between them or areas that are at risk of becoming split off because, you know, only a few people remain remain there who hold them together. So once you've identified them, then create those contexts for members from both of those areas to create strong cross-cutting ties. These contexts can be formal working groups or what works incredibly well is informal groups. Whatever it is, we need to provide those opportunities for these people to start to connect and, and build those strong connections. And through these things, we can start to really build the health up of our organizations. And I think once you hit these, these two main kind of buckets, you're going to see that there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of stability and growth and, 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 and health rejuvenated back into to the network. Well, what you're describing, I think, is very different than maybe what I've heard from a lot of organizations where they feel like 
as uh, COVID restrictions lift, they'll open up the the doors of their offices again and assume that things might be similar to the way they were. I, I'm not personally a fan of the whole return to work or return to because it just feels somewhat regressive. But what you're describing makes a lot of sense. It's almost like a healing process to see where those networks have gotten thinned out and then a prototyping process to look at how the physical environment, among other things, can really be an impactful means of change. I'm just curious about one thing, which is uh, what's the right way of, of kind of determining this health? Is it enough to simply ask around the organization? How's everyone feeling? Are there groups that feel cut off from the rest or is there a more um, scientific or a little bit more data-based approach to trying to identify where things may have gotten a little bit weak? Sure. So there's, there's an incredible array of tools you can use um, that we use all the time that are very complex, but also sometimes the, the simplest ways of just identifying people's organizational identities. What's their role? Who do they interact with? What working groups are they part of? What regions are, do they work within? And we can start to see who needs to be connected. We should know as you know organizational leaders, we should have a pretty good map of what parts need to work together or, you know, as we strategize new initiatives to change our organizations and pivot them, we have a pretty good idea of who needs to work together. And then just by making sure that those people actually have those kind of connections. So if we know that they need to be propagating really complex new ideas, stuff that's, you know, probably not easy for them to, to think about and they need a lot of social reinforcement, we need to make sure that they have a lot of those cross-cutting ties, but those ties are also strong ties. So we need to make sure that they've, you know, built up coordination through past projects. Um, so those are the kind of things that we want to start looking for. That's excellent. I, I've taken so much away from this conversation. Um, in fact, as I think about more human-centered, user-centered workplaces, for me, um, sometimes my mind goes to the individual you helping us to think about networks and the health of networks and actually introducing the notion of spatial interventions into the lexicon of workplace strategy as a means of prototyping how we can positively impact networks is a a really interesting and inspiring take. So thank you, my friend, for spending time with us on Looking Forward. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting with you, Ryan. 